This is a podcast from Delance Healing Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 in the Delance Healing Church building at Le Banc St. Sampson's in the Channel Islands of Guernsey. To contact us or to find out more information about us, please visit our website at delancehealing.co.uk. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be back here this morning. So many memories coming back in here every time I do. But thank you, Pastor Martin and Sally and the rest of the team for your warm welcome and the opportunity to share with you today. Um, At a, a significant time for us, things have changed a lot in the last year, thank God. And we want to thank you for your prayers. Those of you who know us and have been supporting us in prayer, we value that so highly. And it has been a really important time of just seeing how God has been answering prayer this year. And then most surprisingly to us, towards the end of the year, um, as we now are to have been asked to take up the pastorate at the Elam Church in Eldad. It was 32 years ago that we came to the Elam Church in Delancey to be its pastor, just up the road here. A dozen years before that, I had found the Lord there. Diane had found the Lord there. We got saved there. We both got baptized in the Holy Spirit up the lane here. And we left the island to go into Bible training and ministry and served in churches in the UK for a decade or so. And then a letter came saying, would you consider taking the pastorate at the Elam Church in Delancey in Guernsey? And I threw it in the bin. (laughs) And I said, no way am I going to Delancey. No way am I going home to Guernsey. It's strange that a Guernseyman would feel like that. But for me, it was kind of going back into the shackles of island life. And I'd escaped them. And so I thought I wasn't going to come back again. But uh, at that time, uh, Diane really did need to come into the fellowship of the island and our families here. as She'd known several years of really bad ill health. And, um, And the Lord spoke to us again. In fact, God clearly spoke to me a second time which was most unusual in Elim because they didn't usually ask more than once. Um, But they said to me a second time, a few weeks later, we really urge you to reconsider. And God spoke to me very clearly and broke me and brought me to that place of saying yes. And we came and just three weeks or four weeks after we'd arrived at the little chapel up the road, Terence Nicholl, who was the church secretary, came to me and he said, Bill Tubby, who's opening up this ground for the building of houses, is willing to let the church have three of the plots if they want to build a church on it. Well, the plan was already made, the road was already cut in, the main road wasn't going uh, this way, it was going that way onto the seafront, but there were three sites here and we were given them. And, um, oh, it's just a long story, but look at this place now. Isn't that amazing? And you are... (coughs) You are the heirs of the vision of those dear folk... I almost feel like proposing a toast to absent friends. People like Ernie and Gladys who, you know, Ernie used to dance at that door, giving out the hymn books because he was so excited what God was doing in this place. And, um, you know, and Gladys with her flower arrangements and, uh, you know, and, and TCP, Tommy Parrott. He was a bit like Craig Revel Horwood, only in one way. He used to say, Delancey. Do you remember that when he prayed? used to thank the Lord for the Lord's blessing in Delancey. Well, he was a great guy, Tommy Parrott, and his lovely wife, Gertie. Two absent friends, amen? But we shall see them again, because they're in the presence of Jesus. 
just want to ask Diane to come and say a few words of greeting and we'll get into the word of God. I've got a message this morning I really feel is from the Lord for you. Oh, it's so good to be back here. I love it here. Do you know you're so blessed? Is that on? Have I got to use this? Wow. <laughs> it's modern, you see. It's modern. You'll have to hold it in your right. hand. Right, that's the in word, eh? Modern. There you go, postmodern. There you right. go. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for your prayers. We've been on a long, hard road, but mm. we can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Mm. Eric's got this gadget inside him. Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> Amen. There's never a time when we may not hope in God. Whatever the necessities, however great our difficulties, and though, to all appearances, help is impossible, yet it is our business to hope in God, yes. and it will be found that it's not in vain. Amen. So keep hoping in God. And now I know, Eric, the word of God is burning in his bones. He's had years with not being able to have an outlet for the word of God. So over to you, my lovely husband. What time do you Going to read from the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And I'm reading at the end of um, chapter 31, just the last verse or so of chapter 31. Let me just move this to one side so that I could sort of chat from my bar stool. You'll excuse me sitting down. Whenever Jesus preached, he sat down, by the way. He sat down for the Sermon on the Mount because that's how rabbis taught in the New Testament. They sat down. And uh, anyway, there we go. Uh, it helps me. Um, last verse but one of chapter 31 of Second Chronicles, verse 20. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. Verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. And after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, the city of God, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city. 
and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed throughout the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they asked. They asked. Then he worked hard, did Hezekiah, repairing all the broken sections of the wall and, the, and building towers upon it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. And he appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate. And he encouraged them with these words, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Amen. Now, you know, that was a terrible day for the people of God. Really hard time. They had worked so hard to renew their walk with God, their faithfulness to God. They had, they had, Hezekiah had done everything. Look, it says at the end of chapter 31, in everything that Hezekiah undertook, in the service of God and obedience, he sought his God and he worked wholeheartedly. But by the time of the beginning of chapter 32, we read, after all that, the enemy came and invaded Judah. After all that he'd done, after all his faithfulness, after he'd served God wholeheartedly, still the enemy came and invaded the land and surrounded the city of God. Now, of course, we've got the luxury of of um, looking back. And we know that Sennacherib, this vast army under this terrible general who was so cruel, I mean, you see the kind of cruelty that goes on in the Middle East now, in Syria, as the government troops are shelling their own people in, ha- in, in apartments, etc. Well, that's nothing compared to the people of that very same area at that time. Think the Nazi hordes. Think the cruelty of the Red Army under Stalin. Think of Pol Pot and the killing fields of Cambodia. And then you've got Sennacherib and the cruel army of Assyria. But Hezekiah did overcome him. And for another nearly 200 years, the people lived in in their holy city and in their land until they too, like the northern tribe of Israel, were taken away from Judah into captivity. So this was a significant victory. But at the point at which I have read, there is no sense of the coming victory. Throughout these 15 years of battling with one of the most painful diseases known to man, back and forth into hospital so many times, so many surgeries, so many procedures, so much time in intensive care, so, ne- so many near-death experiences. I, I've, I've, I've had to hold on to the promises that God has given that a better day would come. One of those promises was in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10, uh, 2 Peter 5 and verse 10, where it says about, um, in the Living Bible, it says, after you have suffered a little while, God himself will come and lift you up, set you in place, and make you stronger than ever. 
And that's what we're believing for now. In fact, prophetically this year, we have felt the Lord saying to us, this is the time of the fulfillment of that promise. But throughout those years, and for Hezekiah, after all the service that he had done, he was in full-time service of God. He served God wholeheartedly, and yet he found himself attacked by the enemy to the very gates, and it looked like it might, he might lose it all. Have you felt like that sometimes? You know, you've done your best, you've served God, you've believed the gospel, you've done all you could, and still, still the enemy comes to the gates. Still you're fighting what seemed to you to be the battles of yesteryear. You're fighting them again. It's hard. Now at that point, we need to learn the lessons of Hezekiah. We need to start operating in God's strategy, the kind of strategy that he gave to Hezekiah to enable him to go through the valley and come out the other side, as you will too, because God is with you. Remember that marvelous encouragement towards the end that he gave to the people. Don't be afraid of this terrible enemy. Don't be discouraged, for there is a greater power with us than with the enemy. Amen? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Shall we say it together? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Now that is the truth this morning. However much the enemy, we're in a hostile world, of course we are. This world has thrown over faith and love for God. This world has become militantly atheistic. I tell you what, when we opened this church in 1982, we thought life was hard. It was nothing compared to what we're facing today. This is a hostile world. Hedgehogs have got more rights than Christians in this increasingly liberal society. I didn't say that. An ex-government minister said it in the Sunday Telegraph three or four weeks ago. You know, it's hard to live for Jesus Christ today. It's hard to keep trusting God when the enemy's at the gate. It's hard when we take our values from the soap operas where everybody's fighting and arguing and shouting at each other. It's hard when you watch, you know, hours and hours and hours of television and you get one hour with God's people on a Sunday morning. It's hard to keep your mind focused. Every time I went to London, I was in a pancreatic liver ward where men were dying around me. They were addicts, they were alcoholics, because that's how most people get the disease I got, even though I've been a teetotaler since I was a teenager. And I saw life, I tell you. I saw life. I mean, men would, would leave the ward at night and go out to shoot up in the street or get drink and come back into the ward. Ridiculous. remember a man stumbling over my bed and vomiting over my bed as he stumbled back to his bed after being out all night on the tiles. And I used to say, God, what am I doing here? The enemy's at the gates. How do I cope with this, Lord? You know, I'll be a missionary for Jesus. That's great. I'll be a pastor. Well, everybody knows you're a man of God and some will respect you and some will ridicule you, but at least you know where you stand. But when the enemy's at the gates, and it may be a member of your family that's causing this for you. Maybe it's, you know, a rebellious teenager in your home. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you come here as the victim of an enemy at the gates. And you say, God, I wish I could stay here. It's so lovely when Martin's leading us in worship. It's so good when the people are praying and prophesying around me. But this is not life. This is not where we're at. 
We come here for resources, we come here for strength, but we go out and we live in a hostile world, a broken world. But you can overcome, and you can survive, and there are better days ahead. Hallelujah. You know, I just, just quickly remind myself of what Hezekiah had done, because in chapter 30, I'm not going to ask you to read it, I'm just going to give you the headlines. In chapter 30, a lot had already happened in Hezekiah's life before he found himself under siege by the enemy. First of all, in, in chapter 30 and verses 1 to 5, he re-established Passover among the people. In other words, in those first five verses of chapter 30, he brought the people back to what I suppose we would have called the table of the Lord. He brought them back to the place where they remembered what God had done for them when he delivered them from captivity. Now that had fallen into disrepair. And the reason for it in chapter 30 verses 1 to 5 we're told is because there weren't enough people, priests, Levites in those days, the Old Testament, remember, there weren't enough people consecrated enough to lead that kind of celebration. And so there was a kind of a a decay in that area which was so fundamental to Jewish religious life, celebrating the Passover. Okay? Now, Hezekiah made sure that foundation was properly laid. Let me just say to you, we need to get back to the cross as the basis of our Christianity. Not our church attendance, not our membership of Elim or the Baptist or wherever we find ourselves, but we need to choose to live where the gospel begins at a hill called Calvary, where Jesus died to make us right with God. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus died to make us so clean that we can stand before God even while the enemy is at the gates and we can recite with the words of Paul the Apostle, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That's where we begin. Hezekiah made sure of that long before the enemy circled around his city. Also in in chapter 30, verses 6 to 9, we read that he sent out couriers calling on people in the land to repent. In other words, he made sure that he was right with God through receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour and focusing on, on what the Lord had done for him. I'm sorry, I'm speaking New Testament now, but that's the equivalent of what he did. And then he, he started to send the message out. And, and maybe there was a time... There certainly was for me in in my battle against uh, the enemy. There was a time when you used to send the the message out. You used to evangelize. You used to to mission. You used to go out. You used to share. You used to serve. You used to preach. You used to sing. You used to do all that you could, just like Hezekiah. And, and, you know, if you read back to to chapter 30 and verses 6 to 9, where you read about this, you'll see that people did not respond well. It says that some of the people in the land ridiculed these messengers. But there were some in Judah who heard the word gladly and humbled themselves. Okay, so maybe you've been mocked. Maybe you've been ridiculed. But at least you've got the word out. Can I say to you, there is no better preparation for fighting the battles against the enemy than giving out what you've already got Give it away. You know, the church in Toronto that I went to in, in several times in um, the 90s used to have as its motto, I think it still does, to live in the love of God and to give it away. And that's a beautiful thing. And I want to, to say to you, don't, don't wait until you're better before you share what you've already got 
with, with people around you because this broken world hasn't got an inkling of the wonderful good news that you've got. It's good news that Jesus died to set us free from sin. It's good news that he rose again on the third day and is alive today and wants to come into the lives of ordinary people. Hallelujah. So share it. One evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Okay? It's not a perfect man or woman lecturing somebody else. Listen, Jesus calls us to go and give out the good news, not the good advice. Eh? It's the good news. News is the report of something that's happened. The something that's happened is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not that I'm holier than you or better than you or whatever. Let's get the good news out and keep the good advice for another day. Also, we read in, in chapter 30 of uh, Second Chronicles that um, Hezekiah had got rid of idolatry in his life and in the city. He chucked out all the idols that the people had gathered over years of superstition and idolatry. And it all had to go. And you know there are times in our lives, and sometimes it can even come through the enemy's attack, through suffering, when we have to have a conscious clear out of anything that we've allowed to become idols if we're going to have victory over the enemy. Because he knows the idols. You see, Sennacherib was an idolater himself. And he probably worshipped the same immoral idol gods that the people had brought into the city when they were wandering away from God. And so Sennacherib had some, he had grounds to undermine the people of God. And they had to get rid of that. And, and we had to in our lives, and you'll have to in yours if you're going to get victory over every work of the evil one. There's a lovely old hymn that had a verse that said this, The dearest idol I have known Whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. If there's an idol in the way, we won't have that victory. If there's something we're worshipping more than the Lord our God, if it's your loved one, if it's your child, if it's your career, if it's your car, if it's your gadgets, if it's your Xbox, whatever, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Also in, in um, uh, Second Chronicles in 31 actually, in the middle of 31 verses 5 and 6, the people became very generous and enthusiastic in their giving. They invented a thing called the heap offering because they brought so much money to bless the work of God and to meet the needs of the poor that they had heaps left over. So they called this heap offerings. So Hezekiah really had helped the people to enter into grace, get rid of the idols, get rid of their fear of doing without and having nothing if they, if they give too much away. And they started to heap up their giving and their generosity. What a people. The people were generous and enthusiastic. And there was love and joy and praise filling the city. Love and laughter marked their gatherings and their celebrations. Their worship wasn't a funeral, it was like a party. And yet, the enemy came to the gate. Let me just close by asking you to consider with me, from the verses that I read, the strategy that gave Hezekiah the victory, when after all he had done, he still found himself in trouble. Because I think, I think there's some of us here today who have been surprised at how much energy the enemy still has after all the years we've served God 
and followed Jesus Christ. So in case that's you, I just want to point you to three or four just simple things and then I'll close with prayer. The first thing is this, that when Hezekiah realized that after all that he'd done, the enemy was back, he dug a deep personal watercourse to bring fresh water into the city underground and cut off all the streams and springs in the land. In other words, he made sure, he dug deep to enable water, the water of life, to flow within the city of God. Now, Hezekiah's Tunnel, of course, is an amazing and well-known piece of of archaeology. I'm told you can actually stand up in it. I've not been in it, but apparently it was dug in the early part of the 8th century before Christ. That's roughly 700 and something before Christ. And they started at two different ends, a spring outside the city called the Gaihun Spring and a pool inside the city called the Pool of Siloam. And they started tunnelling through solid rock from both ends. Now there were no lasers, no computers, no fancy gadgets. They met in the middle. Isn't that fantastic? 533 metres long and they met in the middle. And they now know through archaeological discoveries that what they did was they had a team working above ground and a team working below ground at both ends. And the ones working above ground used to hammer on the solid rock. And that would give the ones working underground a sound signal to show them which way to go. And they were so accurate that they met in the middle and the water, because it was one foot higher at the Guyon Spring than they made it at the Pool of Silo and the water, fresh water, flowed into the city right under the feet of the enemy. Hallelujah. And it's still there today. The oldest archaeological uh, artifact that you can actually stand up in in Jerusalem today. Hezekiah did that because God showed him he needed his own personal water supply. And when you spent weeks in an intensive care unit, you can't even read your Bible because you can't focus your gaga on morphine. You know, you, you, you need a personal water source that does not depend on the pastor's sermons or being at church, eh? When we went to Africa, we found ourselves in a situation where nobody worshipped in our language. They didn't even use the instruments we used. They used hoshos and drums. Uh, we found that the sermons went on and on and on for hours and hours and hours. You're saying, like, I like yours, Eric. I know, I know the finishing time. We used, to be in, in, we used to be under tin roofs in Zimbabwe. We were under tin roofs in the baking heat, 32 degrees or more. In suits, the men were, and the women all dressed up and the kids really smart. And we'd be in there for three, four, five hours at a time in a foreign language. I tell you, we were starving for, you know, our own expression of worship and and freedom, etc. But what we found was that there are times, either because you're in a hostile environment, like I I was later in in the illness, or because you're in a foreign situation, like we are in a postmodern world that doesn't love Jesus, when you've got to dig deep to get your own water supply. What does that mean? Well, the living water of the Holy Spirit, eh? Didn't Jesus talk about that living water? When the woman said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw from the well. Ah, he said, if you knew who you were speaking to, you'd ask me for water and I would give you living water which would be springing up within you. A well of life. We need that, folks. You can't depend on the pastor to produce that. We need our own personal water. And Hezekiah dug deep to get it. And he found new and creative ways of digging to get it. And he had a water supply that Sennacherib could not cut off. 
Oh, I'm so glad that we have two. <laughs> and speaking in tongues, I tell you, I spoke in tongues so much up at the PEH and the ICU that they said to Diane, you've lived in Africa, haven't you? She said, yeah, they are. we think he's speaking an African dialect. <laughs> I was desperate. Yeah. What do you do when you're desperate? You cry out in the spirit. You let the water flow. Hey? You can't get to church. You can't get to communion, but Jesus is with you there. And you say, Lord, I'm in a hostile situation. And he says, well, drink the water. I've given it to you. Drink it now. See? It's what Hezekiah did. It's what we did. It's what you must do. And then also, just looking again at those first few verses of Psalm, of, of Second Chronicles uh, 32, I discover that he started repairing those sections of the walls that were broken down. Like Nehemiah. Do you remember Nehemiah who heard much later in Israel's life that the walls of Jerusalem had been totally broken down? Well, God called him to build them up again. And God's called Martin and the team here to build up the walls again. Not for a siege mentality where we hide behind the walls and we fail to integrate and interact with this broken world. Not at all. But rather so that where we recognize certain fundamental defensive things are not working properly, we repair them. What am I talking about? Well, just to the leaders, and I was speaking about this to the leaders on Thursday, one of the very important things in church life is to make sure the back door's closed. You know, it's great to have a big open door at the front. It's lovely to have a shop window. We call that evangelism. But we've got to close the back door. We've got to find ways of keeping the people we're reaping. I, I love a program of evangelism and ministry written by Lawrence Singlehurst, a YWAM leader, and he, he's called his book Sowing, Reaping and Keeping. And that's very, very important. So there's one of the little towers that maybe we have to work on in Elim, on the island in these coming years. But another fundamental tower that needs to be repaired in my heart, and perhaps in yours, is this. That I am accepted in Christ, whatever circumstances I am in. I belong to Jesus. And so do you if you've accepted Christ and you're walking in his way and you know that he loves you. Listen, even when we fail, and we do, even when we turn and we walk away as we have, he's still there. He met the two on the way to Emmaus. They were walking away, weren't they? They were walking away from the cross and the disappointments and the frustrations and the letdowns. They were walking away and Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He was walking their way. And he stayed with them until they had their eyes open to who they were in him. We are in Christ. Terry Virgo in his book Spirit-Filled Church has said this, We are either in Adam and therefore guilty sinners, or we are in Christ and therefore righteous. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. Whether we feel spiritually high or low, a real grasp of this truth frees God's people from a constant round of condemnation and heaviness. That's the Guernsey disease, by the way. Condemnation and heaviness. And people feeling inadequate. Don't ask me, I can't do nothing. You know, that's the Guernsey disease. There's something about island people. We struggle 
to really believe that we're somebody. We struggle with that. I believe the British also have tried to overcome that. They're an island race. They've tried to overcome that with their empire and all the rest of it, but they're learning how little they really have in spiritual terms. And I just feel the Lord is saying to you today, as he says to me, you belong to me. Yes, you fail, but you are not committed to failure. You are committed to Christ. And sin shall not have dominion over you. You've lost a scuffle and a battle. Sennacherib had conquered most of the land. But ultimately, he was not going to conquer Jerusalem under Hezekiah's leadership. Because Hezekiah repaired those basic foundational towers and walls which needed to be repaired in his life. And you and I can do that when we remind ourselves what God has done for us in Christ one of the worst things that we can suffer by, with as Christians is legalism that tells us that we've got to earn God's acceptance. We didn't have that when we got saved. We were accepted by grace in Christ and we are kept by his grace. And we need to trust in that. Not to, not to live in sin by choice, no. Romans 6 says it, doesn't it? Shall we remain in sin that grace may abound? And Paul gives his own answer. No, of course not. God forbid. We choose to follow the one we love, but when we fail, he has not utterly cast us off. Very quickly, he also recalled and reminded the people that greater is he who is with us than he who is with them. Do you remember an occasion in the life of the prophet Elisha when another king came to take him captive? And Elisha's servant got up early in the morning and he looked out of the window and he saw all the enemy camped outside the city. And the, the servant was utterly cast down. He said, we've absolutely had it. Oh, we're in a broken world. We're in a hostile world. They've come to take us captive. After all you've done, Elisha, after all your prophesying, after all your praying, how did you get in this mess? And Elisha said, oh Lord, open his eyes. And God opened the servant's eyes. And above, Second Kings chapter 6 it is, above the enemy's hosts, he saw the chariots and the armies of the angels of the Lord. And his eyes were opened and said to Elisha, greater is he who is with us than he who is with them. And so they were delivered. And Jesus says to us the very same thing. In the world, you will have tribulation. You won't get told that on God TV. You won't get told that by some. In the world, you're going to have trouble. When the Apostle Paul started the churches of Galatia, a few years later, he and Barnabas went round, and they strengthened the believers by telling them that through many hardships, they were going to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you haven't heard that one either, you need to look for it in your Bible because it's there. Trouble will come. Enemies will come. But Jesus said, don't be afraid, for I have overcome the world. Hallelujah. It's in my Bible too. I, says Jesus, have overcome the world. And in 1 John and chapter 4, right at the end of your New Testament, there's a lovely promise with which I close. Right at 1 John and chapter 4. And the Apostle John who ended his life in captivity in a stone quarry breaking rocks 
on the island of Patmos um, for his testimony. All the other disciples were killed for their faith. John ended up in prison, uh, dying there in captivity. But he says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, You, dear children, you are from God and have overcome because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's say it again. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It's true however we feel. It's true whatever happened yesterday. It's true whoever's encamped around us, threatening us. It's true, Lord, as we leave this place, that you are with us. With them is only the arm of the flesh, and the arm of the flesh will fail. But with us are the armies and the hordes of heaven and the assurance of victory in Christ. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Delancey Elim Church. For more podcasts, information, or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceyelim.co.uk.